Hello there, you're very welcome indeed to Rattlebag. The following lines are taken from the autobiography of our featured guest today. You are about to read the tale of the toughest Irish lass who ever took on Hollywood and became a major leading lady. In a career that lasted over 60 years, I've acted, punched, swashbuckled and shot my way through an absurdly masculine profession. As a woman, I'm proud to say that I stood toe to toe with the best of them and made my mark on my own terms. Above all else, deep in my soul, I'm a tough Irish woman. And those are the words of one of Ireland's greatest actresses. For years and years, for decades in fact, perhaps our only bona fide Hollywood star, Maureen O'Hara. And of course, many remember her as the red-haired spitfire, Mary-Kate Danaher in The Quiet Man. I am sorry. I have a fearful temper. You might as well know about it now instead of finding out about it later. We Danahers are a fighting people. I can think of a lot of things I'd rather do to one of the Danahers. Miss Danaher. Shh, Mr. Thornton. Maureen was guest of honour at the Galway Film Fla last July. Part of the Fla tribute was a rattlebag public interview with this great lady of Irish cinema. She was in sparkling form, full of anecdotes about her extraordinary career, her association with the two Johns, Ford and Wayne, her experiences while shooting The Quiet Man in Mayo and in Galway, with lots of stories from her recently published memoir, Tis Herself. As you'll hear, the audience gave her a very warm reception when she appeared on the stage in Galway's Town Hall Theatre that day. Um, okay, let's start with the opening of the book, the opening couple of pages of the book. And a gypsy foretold your entire career when you were just five years old. Yet uh, you write that you didn't need anything or anybody to tell you what your place in the world was going to be. Where, where did that confidence and that self-belief come from, do you think? I that? think uh, we Fitzsimons kids, there were six of us, and we had the most wonderful mother and father kids could have. And they made each one of us what we turned out to be. It was thanks to our mother and father. Uh, your father um, played football for Meath, and I can for tell you County something. County Meath, yes. Yeah. He played Irish football, but he got caught at a soccer game. And uh, as you know, that was the end of it. He got in an awful lot of trouble. And he was a man with a strong temper and a strong, uh, strong, he was a strong man. And he said, that's it. I'll never go to an Irish football game again. And so he got involved with soccer. And he wound up owning most of Shamrock Rovers. And um, he had one daughter, Maureen, who fell in love with soccer too. And I went to a soccer game every Wednesday every Saturday and every Sunday. And one time, uh, there was a big match on a Saturday afternoon, and I was really sick. I had a terrible sore throat, and I felt terrible. But I couldn't give up that soccer game, and so I didn't say a word. I didn't say that I was sick. I didn't tell my mother and father anything. I went to the soccer game. Thank God Shamrock Rovers won. And I went home and I said, Mommy, I'm sick. And so she checked my sore throat and everything else. And I wound up somewhere that I don't think anybody here 
tonight would know, Klonsky Fever Hospital. I had diphtheria. But I enjoyed the soccer game. <laughs> um, your family, uh, yes. an extraordinary family. You, you describe them as a kind of an Irish version of the Van Trapp family. They were all artists in different ways, weren't they? Yes. Um, my older sister, Peg, uh, now she's an Irish sister of charity, just retired, and uh, she was a magnificent lyric soprano. And the great lyric soprano in Europe at that time was an Irish girl, Margaret Burke Sheridan. And she was trained by Mother Clements at Eccles Street School, Dominican College, Eccles Street. And Mother Clements had chosen my sister Peg to be the next great lyric soprano of Europe and arranged for her to go to La Scala Milan to uh, work and study. And Peggy decided she really wanted to be an Irish sister of charity. So, 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 so she is today. And uh, one time, uh, the, the, what I really wanted to do was sing. And uh, one time I sang part of The Messiah in New York, and it was recorded, and my sister Peg listened to it. And she said to me, how dare you? How dare you sing like that? You are a disgrace. She nearly broke my heart. <laughs> you were destined, obviously, from a very early age to go in a totally different direction because you joined the Abbey Theatre at the age of 14. 14. Yeah. But you I mean, could not, anybody tells you they joined the Abbey Theatre younger than that, it's a heap of baloney. You could not join the Abbey, you couldn't take the exam to become a member of the Abbey Theatre until you had had your 14th birthday. And I couldn't wait for my 14th birthday. And uh, I went into the Abbey Theatre anyway. And there were four examiners in the audience. And you had to do a scene from a play and play all of the parts. Then you had to answer their questions and discuss whatever they wanted to talk about. And then a week or so later, you were notified that you were accepted or you were not accepted. And uh, when I did it, I was accepted. And also, I've never forgotten, I don't know if he's alive or where he is anymore, a policeman of point duty was also accepted the same day as I was. Tell us about the chance meeting then that led to uh, a screen test in London, a very important screen test for you. You mean the meeting with Lawton? Mm. Oh, I had gone to England to shoot a screen test, uh, which the studio had contacted the Abbey Theatre and said they wanted to shoot the screen test. And my mother and father were very strict and thought, no way they were going to let this daughter of theirs over to London to make a screen test. So they said no. And there was a very famous actress at the Gate Theatre uh, ooh, my memory, I tell you. You know what we call that, or is what it's called in the United States? It's called a senior moment. <laughs> <laughs> when you can't remember something. I, I've remembered her name, May Carey, and she was a fine actress at the Gate Theatre. And we had, my mother and I, we had coffee with her on Grafton Street, and we told her about the screen test offer and that daddy and mommy had turned it down. And she said, oh my goodness, you're fools. She can always come back to the Abbey Theatre. 
but she may never be asked to make a screen test again. So daddy and mommy changed their minds and they let me go to London to make the screen test. So I made the screen test at Elstree Studios. And somehow or other in the th theatrical profession, you find yourself with an agent. So the agent said, before you go back to Dublin, we'd like you to meet somebody. And my mother said, fine, but we're going home tomorrow. So the next day, we did go to an office and walked in and met Charles Lawton, and who was per perhaps one of the greatest actors in the world. You're probably all too young to even remember him. <laughs> but, well, you saw Hunchback of Notre Dame. Well, that was Charles Lawton. And uh, Lawton met me, and his partner was there, Eric Pummer, who was the big, big producer from Germany, who left Germany because of all the problems in Europe at that time, and uh, they became partners, and they formed a company called Mayflower Pictures. And um, Lawton handed me a script, and he said, uh, would you read a page for me? And I said, absolutely no, I know nothing about it. If you let me take it home and read it, I'll come back and I'll read uh, a, a, a scene for you. And he said, no, 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 that's all right, that's all right. And so we left. But they asked, Lawton asked if there was any film on me. And they said, yes, there was this film I had just shot at Elstree. It was awful, absolutely awful. Uh, I was, what, about 15 or 16 then, and they dressed me up in a gold lame gown, and they put this makeup on me, and I looked like Mata Hari. And uh, they told me to walk into a room, and they had a table with a phone on it. And they said, uh, go to the phone, pick it up, then slam it down, then walk out of the room, then come back and do it again. And I thought, mother of God, what kind of nonsense is this? This would never happen at the Abbey Theatre. And I thought, if that's motion pictures, I don't want to have anything to do with them. And so we went home and went back to Dublin. And when we arrived in Dublin, at the house was an offer of a seven-year contract with Charles Lawton and Eric Palmer. And Lawton told the rest of the story on television years later. He said that uh, when he saw the test, he said it really was awful. And he thought, my God, how could we have been interested in that young lady? And he got into his car and drove back to London. And he said that on the way, he could only remember my eyes. And when he arrived in London, he said to P Palmer, She's marvelous, she's wonderful, and you've got to go see this film. So Palmer went out late at night to see the film on this marvelous girl. And when he saw it, he was furious. He said, how dared Lawton send him out late at night, all the way out of London to Elstree Studios, to look at this dreadful piece of film on this dreadful girl. And he got back in his car and he said that on the way back into London, he could only remember my eyes. <laughs> and when he got there, he said to Lawton, you're right, she's wonderful. <laughs>
So the offer of a seven-year contract arrived in Dublin ahead of us. And uh, Daddy and Mommy talked it over, and they decided, okay, they'd let me sign it. And it had to have a co-signer. And our parish priest was a Reverend James Doyle at the top of Beechwood Avenue in the, in the church there where I was baptized. And he came on his bicycle, and he was the co-signer of the contract with Lawton and Palmer. So he's dead and gone now, naturally. He'd, I was a little g girl then, and I'm an old lady now, so he's, he's pretty old. That but led to, uh, I mean, it led to a film called My Irish Molly, which was the last time that Maureen Fitzsimons appeared. Yes. And then Maureen O'Hara emerged in Jamaica Inn, which starred yourself and Charles Lawton and was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. So it was quite an introduction. Was there a, yeah. any clash of egos between the two of them, between Hitchcock and, and, uh, and Lawton at the time? No, no, the only clash of egos would be me because I thought I was the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> But uh, it was Lawton who changed my name. My name is Maureen Fitzsimons. And it's interesting. Are you interested in how I got Maureen, the yeah. name? Well, when I was born, uh, Daddy, you know, naturally in those days, you were baptized within three days after your birth. I don't know what they do today. But um, Daddy wanted to call me Plain Kate. Mommy wanted to call me Catherine, and there was an awful argument with me lying on the bed waiting to be carted over to the church, and the argument got so bad that my godmother said, well, she should be named for her godmother, and, but I wouldn't curse any child with my name. Her name was Alice Maud, and so it got so serious that they had to send for the priest who was over at the church. The, the priest then was, was uh, Father Joseph Nolan, who baptized me. And uh, Father Keane was the pre priest who was bought in to settle the argument. And he said, well, she's born on the 17th of August. It has to do with the Blessed Virgin, so why don't you call her Maraid? And my mother said, I'd never get my tongue around that. And, and then he said, well, Mary. And my mother said, no, no daughter of mine is going to be called Mary. And Daddy kept saying, Kate, plain Kate, plain Kate. And my mother said, well, Catherine. And my father said, no, plain Kate. And finally, Father Keene said, well, she's so close to the Virgin's birthday. What about Maureen? And my mother said, fine, take her, take her, <laughs> baptize her. And so I was taken across the street, and I was baptized Maureen, and no second name. I only had the one name, Maureen. And my mother didn't realize for many, many years that she had really called me Small Mary. <laughs> Maureen is Small Mary. We were talking about Charles Lawton. And, and how he changed my name. You've already, already said you were too big for your boots. Well, your name was too big for the marquee. That's what he yeah, changed that's it right. to. Well, he said that nobody would ever get Fitzsimons right. They'd call me Fitzsimmons, Sid Simmons, everything wrong. And he said, we're going to change your name. And I said, but I don't want to change my name. I like Maureen Fitzsimons. And he said, no, we're going to change your name. And you can be called Maureen O'Mara or Maureen O'Hara. And that's it. And I said, neither one. And uh, he said, very well, then your name is Maureen O'Hara. <laughs> that was it.
If I wanted my salary check every week, I had to agree. That's what the check was going to be signed out to, O'Hara, yeah, not yeah. to Simons. <laughs> Um, in, in 1939, then, you were, you were 18 years of age, and you traveled to America for the first time to work with Lawton on the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And uh, amazingly, I read in the biography, in the, the, the memoir, Tis Herself, that you did a lot of your own stunts. Just tell me about some I of those stunts. I always did. Not just in Hunchback, but in Hunchback, the actor... It wasn't Lawton, it was a stuntman called Dick Crockett, who held me up like, like that, across his hands, on top of the cathedral, to show the people in the square that I had been rescued and I was safe. Like a fool, I did it. And if his arm had just wavered a little bit because of my weight, uh, I would have crashed hundreds of feet to the ground and been killed. But being a tomboy as a little girl, and I had wanted to play football, and I wanted to box, and I wanted to, and I wanted to do something that only boys got to do. And uh, I don't know if you're all old enough to know what box the fox is. That meant, in my day, rob an orchard. <laughs> but anyway, then I also did where Lawton was tied down, and I was swung from way across on the cathedral. I was swung across and dropped close to him, and I did that too. And I was, uh, really, I was a fool. It's wonderful, but I've done so many stunts, I can't tell you. I did all my own fencing. Being a tomboy, I did judo. I knew all about football. I wanted to box. I loved a good boxing match, and I still do, still do. But the, the boxers in the world today are no damn good. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your association with John Ford, which was one of the most fruitful collaborations, I think, of your career. And your first film with him was How, How Green, Green Was, was My, My Valley. You, you write in the memoir about his painstaking attention to detail, but also about the freedom that he gave you as actors. Just talk to me a little bit about that. Well, uh, he didn't go into details about what he wanted you to do. And actually, if you were hired by John Ford, you were only hired because he knew you could do what he wanted. He was a very difficult, mean, nasty, horrible man, but you respected him, you loved him, you were thrilled to be working with him. It was a very strange thing because he was very, very cruel, really cruel, but it's all in the book, so you've got to buy the book. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but to work with him was really, really wonderful. And he, his people were from Spittle, and uh, they moved to the United States, and on the uh, East Coast, they had a pub. And John Ford, uh, his real name was Sean Aloysius Kilmartin O'Feeney. And uh, it, it, his brother became a very big star in the silent days. Now, come on, give me his name. Francis. Who? 
Francis Ford, that's right. He was a big star in the silent days. And he talked his young brother into coming to Hollywood and changing his name to John Ford. John Ford did it. And then started, he did prop work, which means you carry around the tables and that kind of stuff. And then he advanced and he started directing and his talent was so magnificent and he made some fabulous movies in the early days about trains and oh, he really was a fantastic director but a very unhappy man because he did terrible things to the people that worked for him he did terrible things to me it's all in the book and to my brothers tell me about the time that he punched you in the face i mean i think that was an, oh. an amazing story well i we used to all go to his house mary ford his wife a wonderful lady would invite all the pals and buddies and friends of his to the face to the to the house and one time i was upstairs and there was the director of a famous pirate picture i made he was up there and all of a sudden for no reason whatsoever john ford punched me in the jaw and this man, this director, got up and walked out of the house and said he would never speak to him again. And I went downstairs and was preparing to leave because I couldn't figure out, what did he hit me for? Why? What had I done that was wrong? And I never did and never have found out. And now it's too late. Uh, why? But I can only give you my feeling about him. I think he was a very, very disappointed, unhappy man. More than anything in this world, he wanted to be born in Ireland. And he wanted to be a great revolutionary hero and or a great military hero in the United States. And he never made any of it. And I think Every so often, his anger would spill out, and whoever was close to him got punched in the jaw. And I, it was just my bad luck to be there. You, you, you mentioned in the book that he actually shot very, very little film. That he, oh, yes. Explain why. Well, he knew exactly what he was going to put in the film. He knew how much of every scene was going to be in the film, and he only shot those pieces. He didn't shoot miles and miles and hours of film, which gave the cutter an opportunity to twist the whole story any way they wanted to. And he really was brilliant, brilliant director, wonderful. And the, the stuntmen and the male members of the, the company, uh, everybody, they used to call him, and forgive my language, that old son of a bitch. <laughs> and then they said, but he is our son of a bitch. And they meant that. They used to swear halfway through the film that they'd never work with him again. No way would they ever work with him again. And in the last few days of the film, they'd be saying to each other, I wonder what he's going to do next. <laughs> and we were all guilty of the same thing. Every one of us, John Wayne, Barry Fitzgerald, Arthur Shields, we were all guilty of, of, of being mad at him and yet respecting his talent and his magic 
as he put a film together. You experienced the, the good side of him and the bad side of him, and, th- and there was a lighter side to your relationship as well, because you recount in the book uh, talking to him in Irish, except oh, yes. it wasn't really Irish. <laughs> they had a big affair in his honour once, and the President of the United States was there, and uh, the President's wife, and Ford said to me, he said, I'm going to start speaking to you. And I want you to just keep saying, sha, 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 sha. And he said, let me handle it from there. So I thought, what is he up to now? So I did it. And he, was t- he used to say he spoke Gaelic. He didn't. And, uh, or I should say Irish. And uh, finally, the president said, well, what's going on? What are you two doing? And John Ford said, we are speaking to each other in our native language. (laughs) That's, which was ridiculous, we weren't at all. I was saying sha, 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 and he was saying a heap of rubbish. I want to talk to you a little bit more about Ford, but I want to just uh, to, to dig- digress because you were, I mean, you were basically, you were a kid, you were in Hollywood, you were in America, you, you had to stay there because of yes. the war, yes. you couldn't get back home. After about seven years, you finally got home, and then within a very short period of time, you got a telegram from the studio summoning you back That's to the right. USA, and you put it beautifully in the book, how dare they force me back just to make a silly movie about Santa Claus? Now, tell us, about, tell us about that movie about Santa Claus. Well, uh, to go back a little bit, I didn't go to America. I was taken to America by Charles Lawton to star with him in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And, you know, it was great luck and gifts from God that I got. Uh, You know, it it has never happened to a young girl before, and I don't think it's ever happened to a young girl since. So God was very good to me. But anyway, when we went out to make Hunchback, halfway through Hunchback, Second World War broke out. And none of us were permitted to go back to the country of our origin. Finally, at the end of the war, one day they said, all right, all of you foreigners can go back where you came from. And uh, I, naturally, I was out and gone in a flash. And I arrived in Ireland, and I was thrilled to be back with my brothers and my sisters and my mother and my father in good old Dublin. And uh, the phone rang, and it was Hollywood on the phone, and they said, you're to come back immediately to star in a movie uh, called Miracle on 34th Street. And I was furious. I didn't want to go back. I wanted, wanted to stay home. It was the first time in, what, seven years or so, something terrible. But, you know, if you don't go, they don't pay you. And if they don't pay you, how do you pay the grocery bills? So I went back to New York because that's where they were going to make the film. And when I read the script, I knew, uh-oh, this is going to be one of the great stories of the world because it's so warm and so good and so wonderful and Edmund Gwen who played Santa Claus was so wonderful and by the end of the film all of us believed he really was Santa Claus <laughs> he was so wonderful so there you, you you have the trick of fate and what happens to us
Natalie Wood, uh, her real name was Natasha. She was uh, Russian, or part Russian, and a wonderful, wonderful little girl, and a wonderful actress to work with. And she called me Mama Maureen. And she used to make little ceramics, and she'd bring them in to me every week. And I took all of those with me to the Virgin Islands when I married Charlie Blair, another gift from God, and uh, went there to live. And then had a terrible hurricane called Hugo. I've forgotten the year it happened, but uh, uh, a hurricane, uh, Hugo, if you, you speak Spanish, which I do, uh, um, it's Hugo, it's not Hugo, you don't pronounce the H. And all of John Wayne's hats that he'd given me, and all kinds of memorabilia, and all of Natalie Wood's little ceramics, they're all up there somewhere going around in circles, they all blew away. And she was, she used to love being able to stay up late in Macy's. Oh yes. We worked in Macy's department store for all of the scenes to do with Macy's department store in the movie. And when all the people would leave around six o'clock in the evening, that's when we would work. And the people you saw in the store were extras, as they call it, people, actors, hired to pretend they were clients in the store. And she loved to go with me and go through all of the different departments and look at all the things that were for sale and try on all the dresses and jackets and coats. And we, we used to have a great time. I enjoyed it too. <laughs> to get back to uh, John Ford and your association with John Ford, at a certain point, fairly early on in your career, he talked to you about this Morris Walsh story that he oh, had yes, come across yes. uh, called The Quiet Man and said, yeah. I want you to play the, the, the female Mary Kate. Mary Kate. Uh, it didn't happen for, for, for quite some time no. after that. Um, tell us a little bit about the process by which it did actually happen, because that involved you in Rio Grande with John yeah, Wayne, which was yeah, your first yes. starring role opposite uh, the Duke. Well, uh, can I go back a little go bit? Go back as far as you want. Uh, uh, when one day, John Ford, I was making a, a, a movie at RKO Studios, a, a pirate movie. I've forgotten the name of it. Spanish Main, I think it was called. And uh, one day, the second in command at RKO Studios was John Joseph Nolan. The Irish are everywhere. And uh, he came down on the set and he said, Maureen, we have a pile of trouble. John Ford came to the studio to see you today, and because he was uh, dressed like he always dressed, old clothes, and they said he, uh, the policeman on duty thought that this old man with his old hat and everything else couldn't be the famous John Ford, and he wouldn't let him into the studio. And so Ford went home absolutely furious and boy when he got mad he could get mad and Joseph Nolan said he called and he's furious please will you call him up and tell him that there was a terrible mistake and if he comes back tomorrow we'll put out the red carpet from the gate all the way to the set where you're working so I called Ford and I think the idea of the red carpet tickled his fancy 
And he did come back the next day, and they did put down the red carpet all the way. And what he had come to the studio for was to get a handshake agreement with me to play the girl in The Quiet Man. And so the director of the film was the legal witness, and Ford stated what he wanted. I stated that I would accept. We shook hands, and it became a legal contract. But from then on, there was the problem of raising the money to make The Quiet Man. And every studio that the script was taken to, which was RKO, 20th Century Fox, and MGM, that's Metro, they said, this is a silly, stupid little Irish story. It'll never make a penny. It'll never mean anything. And the years kept going by. This was when he, we had the handshake was 1944. And the years kept going by and kept going by, and nobody would touch the film. And Duke used to say, well, if we don't make it pretty soon, Maureen will, play, will be playing the widow woman, and I'll be playing the part that, that uh, Victor McLaughlin played. So finally, he said, let me take it to Republic Studios, to whom we called Old Man Yates, the head of the studio and the owner. And that was kind of a letdown for Ford because Republic Studios only made 10-day westerns. You know, it, they didn't make big movies. And finally, in desperation, Ford said, all right, take it to Republic Studios. So Duke did, and old man Yates read the script, and he said the same thing. This is a silly, stupid little Irish story. It'll never make a penny, but... And that was the magic word. If the same director and producer and cast and crew make a Western for me first to make up for the money I'm going to lose on this silly story, I will finance it. And that movie was Rio Grande, which Wayne and I made together to raise the money to make The Quiet Man. And in those days, Money wasn't like it is today, believe me. The movie cost to make one and a half million dollars. Today, if they were making it, they'd say a hundred million. Over that period of seven years, you've got <coughs> some extremely, and, and they're all in the book, and you've revealed them for the first time, some extremely odd letters from John Ford. Just tell us about those. Well, they were strange letters, and they read like love letters. The, the letters were handwritten. And when I read them, I thought, my God, he must have been blind drunk or something when he wrote these, because they, they're like love letters. But they're not to Maureen O'Hara. They're love letters to Mary Kate Danaher. And you have to realize that when he was working on a script, he became the leading man. And the girl in the, the, the story became a, a sweetheart of his. And you had to understand that about John Ford, that he was to totally absorbed in whatever story or script or picture he was making. When you think of the great, great movies he, he has made in his life, when you think of how green was my valley, one of the greatest movies made in the world to this day. And uh, uh, the, the Quiet Man, 
still is one of the most beloved movies in the entire world. But anyway, when you, when you read the book, which I hope you all do, uh, um, you'd look at it and you'd say, my God, the man must have been drunk. And you know something? Maybe he was. Or at least he was drunk with the love and the idea of making The Quiet Man. Uh, it would be fair to say, I think, that before you made The Quiet Man, as a consequence of Rio Grande, that there was a, an on-screen chemistry already existing between you and John Wayne, wasn't there? Yes, we'd already made uh, uh, Rio Grande. And, um, well, as you know, John Wayne was half Irish too. <laughs> so, <laughs> as long as they're Irish, they're in my ball game. He described you as, I think, one of the one of the greatest guys. That's true. That you never met. Yeah. Somebody once time said it was published in the paper too. Uh, a reporter said, "What about O'Hara? What about O'Hara?" And he said, "One of the greatest guys I ever knew." And that was from Duke. That was very very flattering, and I'm very proud of it. You spend a lot of time in the book, thankfully, talking about The Quiet Man and, and laying a number of myths and, and, and bogies to rest. I think at that stage, the relationship with John Ford was not the kind of relationship that had existed on How Green Was My Valley. And uh, sometimes the relationship with, with Wayne could be quite tetchy as well. Um, tell me about the time that you broke your hand, for example, in the film. Oh, that was playing a scene in, in the picture, but when you're acting, you go through a day where you're mad at each other and a day where everything's wonderful and, you know, and before we did that scene, it was the first scene inside the cottage and she didn't know he was coming and he caught her in the cottage and then he kissed her and she hauled off and sucked him in the jaw and he saw when I turned to hit him, he thought, saw oh my God, she's really hitting me for real. And if you watch the film, he puts his hand up and my hand snaps off the tip of his fingers and the pain shot up under my armpit and I thought I was going to die. And I had cracked a bone in my wrist. They took me to the hospital. They x-rayed it. They said it was broken and everything else. And you know what happened? They took me back to work. And I continued working. I still have the damaged hand. And I have no cartilage in my fingers. That was all removed. But that was because Jackie Gleason sat on my hand. Ouch. <laughs> I can't play golf anymore because I can't, I can't close my fist around the golf club. And I'm not going to put those rubber handles. Okay. The great scene at the end where Wayne basically drags you through the village, that was made particularly uncomfortable by Wayne and Ford as well, wasn't it? Yes. What happened there? In the script, it just said that Wayne dragged me across the fields when they said he was going to take me the whole way home. And... I worried about it and I talked to Duke and I said, Duke, we've got to do something. We have to figure it out and don't tell, don't tell the old man. Let's rehearse back in the bushes and get it all right so that the day he says, do it, we don't stumble and fubble around. So the day came 
where he said, do it. And we were up by a truck where this old man was work, working in the film, carrying packages and heavy loads. And they wanted a new cartridge of film. You know, the film, like you put in a camera, only you put in the movie camera. And Duke kept saying to the old man, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And finally, the old man, and Duke said he never forgot it in the rest of his life, looked up at him, put his hands on his hip, and said, look, son, God made time, and he made plenty of it. <laughs> and so Duke stopped hustling him and hurrying him. But anyway, we did the scene. And uh, if you look at the film, I had a back operation afterwards. I, on the, I had uh, a ruptured disc. But anyway, we were thrilled. We were pleased with ourselves. And we thought the old man has to compliment us. He has to say thank you. It's wonderful. You know, he never praised you. He never said anything nice to you. And when we finished the scene, Ford stood up and started walking away. And he said, you see, gentlemen, what a scene is like when it's totally spontaneous. <laughs> We'd been rehearsing it for weeks. But that, that was John Ford. There are two great mysteries, or there were two great mysteries in, in this world. One was the third secret of Fatima. Uh, the second one was what you actually whisper to John Wayne at the end of the film. Now, the Vatican has already revealed <laughs> the third secret of Fatima. And what I want you to do now, just amongst friends, we won't, we won't, we won't tell anyone, And you'll never we? tell anybody. We won't tell anybody. We want you to reveal now what you said to John Wayne at the end of what you whispered in his ear at the end of The Quiet Man. Good luck. <laughs> no, no. When Ford told me what I was to say to Wayne, I said, no, no way. I'm not going to say it. And Ford said, yes, you are. You will say it. And when Ford said that, you did what he said. And uh, he wanted a certain expression on Duke's face. And when you see the movie, look for that expression, and you'll see the shock on his face when he turns around and looks at me. But the deal was that neither Ford, nor John Wayne, nor I would ever ever, ever tell anybody. And John Ford died, and Duke died. I'm still here, but believe me, it'll go to the grave with me too. It was one of your. It was one of your best performances. It was one of the, as far as fans of the Quiet Man, yeah. amongst whom I number myself, one of the great performances in Hollywood. Yet you weren't nominated for an Oscar. Why do you think you were overlooked, Mr. John Ford? Explain. Uh, I, he never wanted any one of us to be recognised or awarded, other than himself. And uh, Anne Baxter was on the committee doing all of the arranging. And I thought, pardon my modesty, I thought I should have got a nomination, and I thought Duke should have got a nomination, and Barry Fitzgerald. And the night 
where they were going to announce who the nominated people were, uh, I had a good friend who was my daughter's godmother, Jean Pettibone, and we sat together waiting to hear what had happened from the committee. And um, Anne Baxter, who is a very fine actress and has since died, she called and she said, Maureen, you're in. And we were thrilled. I can't tell you how thrilled we were. And we waited for the first edition of the newspaper to be printed. We stayed up all night. And we got the first edition, and I was not nominated. And Anne Baxter always said, she said, Maureen, I left 20 minutes to a half an hour before the meeting finished. And I don't know who, and her remark was, knocked you out of the box. Somebody did. I'll tell you the rest of the story, and you can make up your own mind. A few days later, I happened to go into the studio and visited Mr. Ford's office. And I went into his office, and something hit me. It was he had thrown a box at me, and he said, that's for what was stolen from you the other day. And when I opened the box, there was a gold, 14-carat gold bracelet in the box, and it had a 14-carat gold Oscar hanging from the bracelet. So what do you think? No, but he, 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 was, he was that way. He never wanted Duke, John Wayne, to receive any awards. He didn't want Barry Fitzgerald to receive any, none of us. He wanted everything for himself. And in a way, we never blamed him because he deserved all the awards he got. But it was very hurtful uh, to us. It was very hurtful. But I have to be honest with you, there's a lot of jealousy and that kind of nonsense goes on everywhere in the world and also in Hollywood. I could tell you many stories of, of terrible things that happened. Oh, do, please. <laughs> tell you the one about Duke? Yeah. When we made a movie called McClintock, which was a great movie with Duke, almost fully through the movie, it was all a lot of the stunt men and the uh, cowboys and all of those that worked in the film, they all adored John Wayne. And they came to me one day, and Andy McLaughlin, Victor McLaughlin's uh, son, was part of the coming to me. And they said, Maureen, we're all the cowboys, the Indians, the, the, they're all furious that nobody has given John Wayne any recognition. But this is what you need to do. You have to get so many signatures, and you have to do this, and you have to make a proposal, and then they have to consider it and everything else. Would you head a campaign to get John Wayne some recognition? And I felt the same way, so I said, sure. So I went to work, and I got all the necessary signatures, and I did all, you know, and got encouragement from everybody and support from everybody. Everybody felt the same way. Because John Wayne, he made over 200 movies, and he never received recognition for anything. And he already had cancer. And I did everything I was supposed to do. And then I, got, I was ready, and I called the head of the Academy, which gives the Academy Awards. 
and I spoke to the head, and I said that could I have an appointment, that I wanted to come in and talk to him about something very important, and that I had done all the necessary work, and could I please come in and talk to him? And he said, well, what do you want to talk to me about? And I said, well, we feel that John Wayne has never received the recognition he should have received, and I'd like to come in and talk to you about it, and I've done all the homework I should do, I've got all the signatures and everything needed. And he said to me, look here, he said, we don't give Academy Awards to people because they're dying of cancer. And he slammed the phone up. It was, uh, it was the most shocking thing that ever happened to me. I'll never forget it. And I hope he's having his just reward, that gentleman. <laughs> I'm sure he is. But anyway, eventually, yes, we got recognition for Wayne. And it was a wonderful, wonderful day. And shortly afterwards, he did die of the cancer. So it was very sad. I want to thank you, Maureen O'Hara, very much indeed. You're welcome. And that was Maureen O'Hara in a Rattlebag public interview recorded in association with the Galway Film Fla. As is customary on Rattlebag, there were a number of questions from the audience. And in response to one of those questions, Maureen once again highlighted her close relationship with John Wayne. She, she mentioned uh, sliding down into the mud. Well, that was in McClintock. Duke and I went backwards down into the mud. When we did the scene, you've got to realize that when you do a scene involving water or mud or anything like that, it's one take uh, to do each piece because you can't have a second take because that means washing all the clothes, washing your hair, taking your makeup off and putting it on again. And it takes hours. And a company doesn't have that much money available to them to throw away like that. So you do what you have to do. They break it up so you can do it in pieces when you get one take on every one of it. Anyway, when we went down into the mud the first time, it was bitterly, bitterly cold. And you can imagine what that mud was like. It went right through your skin and all your clothes and everything, and it was just awful. And I thought, good God, I can't stand this. Now, you have to forgive the words I'm going to use. And I turned to Duke and I said, good God, Duke. I said, this is like bird shite. And That's what she whispered into his ear when you're no. the quiet man. <laughs> and he said to me, what do you mean, bird shite? It's like snot. <laughs> <laughs> May I tell you that made it worse. I almost threw up. <laughs> God. Maureen O'Hara there in a Rattlebag public interview presented as part of the Galway Film Fla last July. Today's programme was produced by Kevin Brew and research was by Shano Gorman. The series producer of Rattlebag is Nuala O'Neill. 
Maureen O'Hara's memoir, Tis Herself, is published by Townhouse. And we'd like to thank Miriam Allen and Debbie McVeigh of Galway Filmfla, as well as Ashton Casey of Townhouse for making the event possible.